When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What's up all? Aaron, but not that Aaron here to tell you about Sif Pop Writer's Room. For the past several years, there have been a growing amount of writers for SifPop.com providing best ever challenges, movie reviews, themes, legacies, connections, and so much more. Sif Pop Writer's Room is where that all comes together, giving a voice to those words that you read. And on the show, every week is excellent, getting to chat such a wide variety of movies with a wide variety of movie lovers, and I'm really having a lot of fun with the show, and I just think that you would too. So check out Sif Pop Writer's Room wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll see you over there. Just remember to knock first. Do you like sports? Cause we like sports. Let's talk about sports. It's Sports Shack. Sports Shack. It's Sports Shack. Welcome to episode 320 of the Sports Yak podcast. You mean the Vinny Castilla episode? Vinny Castilla! Former slugger, primarily for the Colorado Rockies. Spent some time also with the Atlanta Braves and the Houston Astros, but with the Rockies out there in that mile-high area, three straight 40-homer seasons, of course in the steroid era, and 320 career home runs. So, Vinny Castilla, we doff our cap to you. Family Broadcasting Corporation, in association with the Studio DNA Podcast Network, presents Sports Yak. One host knows sports. And who's right there? The other doesn't know sports, but somehow they meet in the middle. It's all the way! It is! Go! It's good! It's good! Here's your host, Corey Mann. Get your big butt out of here! And Indiana Sports Broadcast Hall of Famer, this one will be relived. Chuck Freebie. Forever! Well, the Indiana Pacers entered the week in the NBA play-in tournament. What that means for the Pacers as the number nine seed... They have to win two games to make the NBA playoffs. They will have to beat Charlotte tomorrow night at Bankers Life Fieldhouse. And then, should they win that game, they would play the loser of the Boston-Washington game. So the way this works, Corey, the first six teams in each conference, they're in the playoffs. They're waiting for the playoffs to start. I believe they start on Saturday. The 7, 8, 9, 10 teams. Here's how it works. 7 plays 8. Winner of that game, you're automatically in the playoffs. You're the number seven seed. You'll play the number two seed in the first round. Whoever loses that game between seven and eight plays the winner of nine versus ten. So, Pacers play Charlotte. Pacers are nine. Charlotte's ten. Whoever loses the Pacers-Charlotte game, they're done for the year. Let's say the Pacers win Tuesday night. Then they have to turn around and play the win or the loser of that 7-8 game. And whoever wins that contest, let's say it's the Pacers in Washington, 
would be the eighth seed in the East. Now, the East setup, not nearly as interesting as the West. So the West, the 9-10 matchup is Memphis, John Morant, outstanding second-year player, exciting player in the league, playing San Antonio, Greg Popovich, one of the perennial powers of the West. Whoever wins that game plays the loser of the Lakers and Golden State. <laughs> so That's an immediate dagger. So you got LeBron versus Steph right away. Winner of that game is now the seventh seed in the West. Loser still alive, likely to have to play Memphis for the play-in game. So the West play-in tournament, I think, far more scintillating for fans to watch than the East. Slightly confusing. It is. It. It's, I tried to follow the best I could. It's highly <laughs> unnecessary. They should have just taken the top eight teams. Okay. Bulls are out. Bulls are out. They lost yet, or they won yesterday, one eighteen to one twelve. But they just they had that bad streak when Zach Levine was out with the COVID and they couldn't recover from it. Also in basketball news, newest Hall of Fame class announced over the weekend. So Saturday they had the Hall of Fame induction for the season, which included Kobe Bryant going into the Hall of Fame. Very emotional speech from his wife, Vanessa. Uh, Also, Tamika Catchings from the Indiana Fever going into the Hall of Fame. Her story is remarkable. But then yesterday they announce, okay, here's going to be the next Hall of Fame class. Quick turnaround. Yeah. A little too quick, Chuck? I think so. I I, did too. If I were running the NBA, I wouldn't do it that way, but I'm not. So the NBA announces that next year, that, and first of all, the class that goes into the Basketball Hall of Fame, way too big. Way too many people going into the Hall of Fame. How many? They got about a dozen. What would be a healthy number in your opinion? I think five's enough. Five. Five is Yeah, like a starting lineup. Yeah. Five is enough. And if you need to select them from different categories, you know, the current players, veterans, WNBA, international, if you need to do it that way, fine. Nobody needs 12 people going in at the same time. That's just too many. We're not the Hall of Very Good. We're the Hall of Fame. So among those going in, Ben Wallace, former Pistons star, Tony Kukoc going in from the Bulls as an international player, and Chris Webber, the former Michigan star, who had a nice NBA career, certainly renowned for his time at the University of Michigan. And remember, the Basketball Hall of Fame takes in all of basketball, college, professional, etc. So Jay Wright, the head coach of Villanova, he's going into the Hall of Fame. I could not remember where Weber played uh, NBA. Oh, yeah. Teammates with Jalen Rose. And if you go onto the Twitter machine, they had a very cool moment where Rose was interviewing Weber. They kind of grew apart. There was kind of a rift during their NBA careers and afterwards, but that seems to have healed up with time. Okay. And uh, because they were tight growing up. I mean, they grew up in the same town. Mm. They grew up as childhood friends. 
Chris Weber mentions to Jalen Rose, thank your mama because you know what a big role she played in my life. So if you get a chance, check out that Jalen Rose-Chris Weber interview uh, with Weber going into the Hall of Fame. Was he on the West Coast? I don't remember where he played. Weber in his career, I think he played out in Golden State. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Quite a bit of his career. You mentioned baseball over the weekend in Castellanos. Cubs took two out of three from the Tigers over the weekend. You know what I don't like? I don't like the patch of dirt between the pitcher's mound and home base in Detroit. At Comerica Park? Not a fan of that. You want them to just wear out the grass between the mound and home plate? You know, like every other place they do it. I I understand. Yeah, I don't... I don't I, it's for, kind it, of... It, it feels kind like of, as a pitcher... It's throwing me off if I'm not lining up with that as opposed to my target being the glove. Like, there seems to be, I don't know, it just threw me off because it's not every park has it. No, it's not every park has it. It's an old-timey type of field. It yeah. used to be that that's what was done at baseball times. Yeah, I don't like it. All right. I wrote a letter. It didn't bother Kyle Hendricks. No. He threw Boy, very he stayed well in the game yesterday. quite a while. Yeah, he stayed in until the ninth and would have finished, except he got into a little trouble. And they gave up a run in the ninth, but still won 5-1. So the Cubs take two out of three. It will be interesting at Wrigley tonight. John Lester and Kyle Schwarber returning to the friendly confines as members of the Washington Nationals. Mm. Obviously, they'll get great ovations from the fans. But you know Lester's going to be fired up to face his old mates. And you would hope his old mates would be fired up to face Lester as well. Yeah. So... Is Schwarber in the outfield with the uh, Nationals? Yeah, he okay. plays left field. What time's that game? Do you know? Uh, Probably imagine, 8 o'clock? imagine it's an 8 o'clock start. Okay. Yeah. I'd like might to watch be, some of that. might be 7.40. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, interesting development yesterday on the south side. Jose Abreu on Friday in the first game of a doubleheader against Kansas City had a huge collision with Hunter Dozier of the Royals. Dozier had hit a pop-up fouled on the first baseline. The White Sox catcher, Yasmani Grandal, was in line to make a play for it. So Dozier, with his head down, runs around Grandal. Well, Jose Abreu is coming in for the foul pop as well because he's not sure Grandal has it. And Abreu and Dozier, a couple of big fellas, both probably about at least 220, full-speed collision right there. Wow. I mean, you could... You could hear the pop like it was a football game in the Nat sound. So they collide. Dozier's out for, he's on the 10-day injured list. Abreu left the game, didn't play uh, the rest of the day, but then came back and on Sunday scores the walk-off run on a wild pitch. Again, this is a big fella. And he came down the third baseline like a freight train on this wild pitch <laughs> that didn't get away from the Kansas City catcher, Salvatore Perez, very far. Manages to score the winning run, and the White Sox win in walk-off fashion 4-3. Now, they only split the series with the Royals, which is a little surprising because if you'll remember Friday, the Sox had won six in a row going into that game. The Royals had lost 11 in a row, but the White Sox figure out a way to win and take it 4-3. Congratulations to the Notre Dame softball team. They're headed to the NCAA tournament that will play down in Lexington, Kentucky. They'll play Miami of Ohio. Kentucky plays Northwestern in the other game. And should they both win, you've got Aaron Koffel from Bremen High School playing for Kentucky against the old hometown team, Notre Dame, 
and that could be an interesting watch on a Saturday afternoon down in Lexington. We are so pleased to be joined on the Sport Shack for the first time by the commissioner of the Indiana High School Athletic Association, Paul Neidig. And, well, the hot topic right now is this shot clock recommendation that's been done by the National Federation of High School Athletics. And they are recommending a 35-second shot clock be implemented in 2022-2023. But it's not a mandate. What is the sense that you get now that you've had a few days to digest this from the people around basketball in Indiana as to whether a shot clock will be adopted? Well, it's something that brings up a lot of conversation and a lot of debate. I've had conversation with coaches over the years that one year will be very supportive of a shot clock because it's really structured to assist their team with possessions. They need as many possessions as they possibly can have. And I've then next year had the same conversation with the same coach who has a different type of team. And uh, they're not quite as in favor of the shot clock as they were the previous year. I say this, but we'll continue to study it and see what's, what's best for the sport. But I look at Indiana and we have schools that still play with kids that grow up in their backyard. They grow up in their communities and, and they're the ones that walk in through the door and they're not, uh, we're not in a college system where you're recruiting to a particular style of game. The other thing that I, I, I talk about is in Indiana, we have the best coaches in the country. We have the best players in the country, top to bottom. In my opinion is we have also have everybody that gets to play in the tournament. Well, we don't exclude anybody from the tournament. And the object is always to win. Put your team in the best possible position to be able to win a contest. Possession control is certainly a coaching strategy that's utilized by many. And if the goal is still to win and put your team in the best possible position to win based upon their skill set, you know, I, I struggle with the concept of taking that tool away from our coaches. And I, and I say that. Uh, I also don't know how big of an issue it is. I've probably, outside of this year, in the last three years, have attended probably 160 games or so. And I cannot recall a game in that time where it was a flat-out stall, uh, hold the ball for a quarter and move on, you know, or try to get a good shot up at the end. I just don't know how big of an issue it is, but I also want to make sure that we're protecting the game and giving everybody an equal playing field. Hey, we reached out, Paul, to some of our Sports Yak audience, and they shot us a couple of questions we'd like to ask. You ready for a softball? Let's go. Dave wants to know, what's your stance on seeding sectional tournaments? I don't, I don't think, first of all, there's a good way to do that across the state, number one. Number two is, uh, when we get to that sectional, we have that blind draw. You take teams that have maybe have had a, a tough year, and then all of a sudden, they get a draw where there's a little a chance that they may be able to win that game. It kind of brightens that team up. It gives them something to focus on, and we've seen teams that uh, can win that first sectional game and build a little momentum and move through the tournament. So, again, when we have a tournament that everybody gets to play in, I just think the blind draw has worked well for the association and schools, and I've not been a fan of seeding uh, the tournament before I ever came here. Uh, I, I, was, I felt the same way when I was in Evansville, when I was a coach, um, when I was an assistant coach, and I just think – you got to be able to sell hope, and that draw sells hope sometimes. Now, the converse to that is there have been situations where you've had highly ranked teams meet each other in the very first game of a sectional, and it might be more advantageous <laughs> to set it up where they could meet 
in the championship game, or at least be bracketed that way. Obviously, it's not like you control the outcome. You know, I've heard that, and while that is exactly true, but the enthusiasm around that highly competitive matchup is there, regardless whether it's the first game of the sectional or the, the championship game at the sectional. And at the end of the day, we're going to crown four state champions. And somewhere along the line, somebody's going to meet with a tough component. Uh, they're going to win or they're going to lose. And I just don't see it being that big of a deal, whether it's at the beginning or at the end. And a lot of times when you set those two best teams away or on either side of the brackets and they're playing against teams that have not won very many games, there's not any enthusiasm built in the tournament in the early level because those games simply are such lopsided contests. Sure. Um, and I don't know that that's good for the sport. This year, you and the IHSA committees went through the exercise of realignment for various sports. You have to do this every couple of years, and there are complications to it. I'm not sure the average fan really understands, A, how difficult that is, and B, they're sitting there and saying, well, 6A in football only has 30 teams, and, and they just don't understand how that happens. So could you possibly explain that for the people? Sure. When when we look, this would typically be a normal realignment year for us. However, I don't know that there's been very many things this past year that have been normal. Uh, we've <laughs> all experienced life with COVID. When we looked at enrollment numbers, given the factor that a lot of schools have gone to online models, parents chose to educate their kids in non-traditional schools, we saw a lot of non-traditional, we'll call it, movement in enrollment, as much as a couple hundred kids in some schools. And so when we looked at that, we just felt, uh, and the executive committee agreed, that it was best to postpone a significant realignment for another year. Now, we did, however, look at the success factor. We applied the success factor. When we applied that success factor, we had two teams in 6A football, as you mentioned, did not have success that were moved up because of the success factor that actually came back down to their class of enrollment, which would be 5A football. For this particular cycle, that's why we ended up with 30 teams instead of 32, because we did not move anybody up based on an enrollment realignment but we did make the success factor adjustments. When will that be adjusted? Will you wait two years for that or just one? Uh, The current plan is that we will look at enrollments next year and go through a full realignment process next year uh, when hopefully schools return to more in-person learning and, and we get back to what we would call more traditional sense of school. Paul, another question from one of our listeners. Nathan wants to know, is the lack of officials the biggest obstacle for high school sports in the future? I think there are a lot of obstacles, but I think officiating is one of them. You know, and there are a lot of reasons that we could spend a a couple hours on as to why officials aren't officiating the sport. But what I would say is uh, you, you have to think about what this game looks like when we are faced with an official shortage. I mean, do we want to cancel games? One of the greatest joy a parent has is going to be able to watch their child play or their grandchild play are there community kids that grew up their play and not being able to do that because men and women choose not to officiate the game. Uh, I think that's a sad time for sport or we really have to adjust the game to make sure there's an official available, you know, and I think we all have to understand one thing when we go into a Friday night to watch a contest, whatever it might be, everybody involved in that concept or in that game is a human being. 
whether you're the fan or whether you're the coach or the student athlete or the official and nothing is perfect. I've gone to a lot of games where I felt that a coach employed a strategy that didn't necessarily work. And, you know, we're not, you know, it's just part of it or somebody's missed a shot or didn't hit that curveball. But we seem to be holding officials to a, a higher level of accountability at times. They're human, too. They're not perfect. They're awful good at what they do, but they're never going to get everything right, as no none of us are. And I think we've got to be realistic about uh, the joy of the game and the human part of the game and, and sit back a little bit, keep things in perspective to make sure that experience is enjoyable for everybody. You mentioned that the lack of officials is one of the big problems, but what do you think is the biggest problem that faces high school sports in the future? There's a couple things. One, I think there's this tendency to start to specialize way too early. Kids are making decisions to to particular one sport or another before uh, they really get into their high school experience. I think that's a problem. The other thing is, this is me personally, but I think While I want to celebrate the great athletes that are on each team, I think we also have to make sure that we are making proper decisions in education-based athletics that protects the experience for the kid who's the last one that's picked for the team. And I think that's what we have to continue to understand. Our model is teaching. We teach kids to uh, win. We teach them to deal with adversity. We teach them to fight and work hard for what you want, set goals, uh, work to achieve those goals. And when we don't have a system that's set up to, to support all kids, even the worst kid, even the last kid who makes the team, then I think that's a challenge for high school sports. And, and we're going to continue to see uh, a system where there's a lot of pressure, a lot of attention paid to the elite athletes. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate great play or great athletes. What I'm simply saying is we've got to make sure that we're focused on the experience for all kids. We've got to keep the dream alive. We've got to make sure that the smallest school in the most rural area of the state has the same dream as schools that are in a metropolitan area with multiple kids. And I think we have to make sure that that's in the forefront of our decision-making when we deal and we talk about high school athletics. Well, that kind of leads to this next question from a listener. Yeah, Robbie wants to know, uh, will we ever return to a one-class basketball tournament, Paul? You know, I I think when you look at the size of schools difference, and we have schools in this state that are around 100 students, and uh, we go north of 5,000 students, even when class basketball came into effect, the disparity or the size of schools was not as great as it is today. You know, I often think about what that looks like. And again, we've got to sell hope. A one-class system today, I think, really lends itself to schools that have larger numbers of students to select from. And I think it's very difficult to go back to. You know, when you you think about the membership, uh, at one point there was over 800 schools in the state of Indiana, and every local community had their town, and there wasn't a big difference in schools. And today, because of consolidation, because of the way the education system is set up, I think it's very difficult to go back to a single class system because it's just not the same as it used to be. But while I played in a one class tournament, many of us did. It was important, but it's important also to keep the dream alive as we speak to. And I I think it's very difficult to transition back to a one class tournament at this point. Paul, you also mentioned reaching out to that to that low person on the totem pole, making sure they're protected and involved. And your predecessor, Bobby Cox, 
implemented a something called unified sports. We see it in flag football. We see it in track. <clears throat> I had one local administrator tell me this is the best thing that's ever happened to his school. How have you seen unified sports really take off here in the last couple of years? The vision to be able to put unified and marry the high school, the traditional student athlete with uh, the other student athletes that are part of a school, I think has just been phenomenal. And we've seen success story after success story of kids that uh, have come out of their shell, so to speak. Uh, the story that I heard one young man speak to not too long ago was that he, he ate lunch by himself in the lunchroom. That was his day. And when unified sport became popular, he went out for the team and was successful at it. And he gained a friend group that he did not have access to before in his previous life, or at least just didn't work out for him. And now all of a sudden he says, then I got to eat with people that I wanted to eat with. And I got included at the big table in the lunchroom. And, and those stories go on and on about why unified athletes need to compete. Um, they need an opportunity to play. And, and we're happy that we've got unified football and we've also got unified track and field in the state. Uh, we are going to, hopefully in the near future, we're going to add an opportunity in the wintertime. So at least we have a unified uh, product available in all three seasons during the school year. But it's it's been phenomenal and one of the best decisions the association has ever made. And I we're going to continue to support it and grow it everywhere we can. Listener Brett wants to know, Paul, was pay-per-view for tournament games a one-time thing or will it continue? You know, we're evaluating that right now. We tried to set a model up to where schools could still have income at reduced fan attendance. And, and I'll be real honest about it. There was, you know, the association still has, uh, we still have a staff that works here and we still had to pay our bills, even though we didn't have attendance of fans, especially early on in the tournament. And we're looking at what pay-per-view looks like in the future right now as our numbers come in. I just would say it's simply too early to tell. I don't see it going away completely at this point. I think there's a hybrid in there and we're going to have to figure out where that is and what that is. Because the one thing I don't want to do is limit uh, individuals ability to see games. And, and I don't want to, to cater a product that's just to, to families or, you know, and I think it's important for us to make sure that we have the game available, regardless of the sport available to a, a wide breadth of individuals. So, we will see. We're going we're gonna to look at that real hard over the next couple months. You mentioned perhaps adding another unified sport in the winter. Are there any other new sports to be added? I think up here of sports like lacrosse and bowling, which aren't official IHSAA sports yet, but certainly seem to be growing. They are. And we uh, implemented a process in our board just approved it at the Elastic uh, Board of Directors meeting that we now have process to assist emerging sports. And so when a sport grows to a point where there's a significant number of teams playing, and I think right now it has to be, it, it's 20 across the state, uh, they can apply for emerging sports status. Though we'll start meeting with those groups, we'll enter uh, rules of play with them, uh, and we're going to look for growth at that point. And uh, if it should grow to a point in the districts across the state, I believe we need to have at least 20 in each district playing in that sport. Then our board has an opportunity to bring them on as a full-fledged sport, which we would administer the state tournament for. Happy that that went in. And, you know, some things, there are multiple things. And you mentioned volleyball, boys volleyball and bowling and lacrosse. Uh, there's a significant number of young ladies that have entered into the, rest, the sport of wrestling. 
we have a lot of uh, people that uh, that are shooting sports. Archery is a big sport in certain regions of the, the state of Indiana. So I do think there's a process in place now that um, sports can, uh, there's a path that will allow them to come into the IHSA and ultimately we would administer those state tournaments. The transfer issue is always a delicate one. It's probably been made even more delicate here by COVID because you had some places where a child couldn't get in-person instruction because of the way a school was set up and maybe went to another school where they could get in-person instruction. How does the IHSA handle the myriad of transfer claims that come in over the course of a season? Well, I think we really honestly handled them fairly well. Um, if you look at the number of transfers that we do, and some years it's in excess of 4,000 transfers, but less than 1% most years uh, receive no eligibility. Now, the, the no eligibility cases are often um, pretty public. There's oh, a lot sure. of people that weigh in on those things. But, you know, these, these rules are not rules around transfer that we've picked up out of the air and just said, we want this to be a rule because they've, they've been developed over time to experience. The thing that I often ask people is this. I do agree that people should be able to make a choice academically, but we often see an athletic decision being disguised as an academic concern along the way. And I always think about the kid, as we've talked earlier, who's the last one to make a team. And anytime somebody transfers schools under false pretense, now we're not going to be in the way of the transfers that happen for legitimate reasons, but if they happen under false pretense, if they happen for purely athletic reasons, there's somebody at the school where that student athlete is going to that gets displaced, whether it be in playing time, whether it be a spot on the varsity team, whether it be a roster spot on the team. And oftentimes we think about the transfer student that may be moving schools, but we often never identify the kid who's affected by that transfer. And again, I'm not talking about legitimate transfers that take place. I'm talking about transfers that are for primarily athletic reasons and an education first system. And, and those are where our concerns are. And, and that's why we continue to need transfer rules. And we have to support those transfer rules because in my view, we have to protect all kids, uh, even the kid who may get displaced by that transfer. I think the association and its member schools and its officials have done a tremendous job of navigating this pandemic and getting in full seasons and tournaments in, well, I, I believe every sport that has been offered. How difficult has this first year as commissioner been for you? Well, I, I don't want to couch my year any different than anybody else's. Every year comes with challenges that we have to address. And and just because I walked in the door at the same time that COVID decided to affect our nation uh, and our world, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. It, all we can do is manage it the best way that we can uh, with what's in front of us. So uh, I don't want to take, you know, I don't think it was difficult for me. I think it's just something that we had to do. And I think that's as I look across this state and I look at what people from Indiana have done, I think everybody has really taken that approach. Uh, I like to speak of Team Indiana. Um, we're the only state, and I'm going to say this because I also want to make sure that I never disrespect the tragedy 
of COVID and what it's done to families. Uh, I had an aunt that passed away from it, but I also believe that kids needed activity. They needed to support support of their schools and going home and waiting for this to be over. I just did not believe was a, 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 the right thing to do for kids, but we're the only state in the country that started on time. Uh, we can test our state championship on time with a full complement of athletes. And I think it was so important to keep the light on for kids, the hope we all got to play. I did many, many years ago. I got to put on my shirt for my community that said North Posey Vikings on it. And that was such an important period of time in my life. And I can't imagine not giving a student athlete an opportunity to do that as they walk through high school. And I'm just so proud of the people in the state who stepped up. They never said we can't do it. They just figured out how to do it. And that's from the governor's office to the state health department to the Department of Education. I even say that everybody that drove a bus or taught a class or coached a kid or fed a kid had something to do with it. And I'm so proud of the work that's been done across Indiana this year. Paul, we're going to squeeze out one more question because we have our One Hit Wonders contest beginning on Sports Yak today. <laughs> we have 44 One Hit Wonders who have reached number one on the Billboard charts and I figure this plays right to your wheelhouse, Commissioner. You get to you get to place a vote today. Do you like Black Velvet or Don't You Forget About Me? Oh, man. <laughs> i tell you what, Black Velvet is an incredible ballad that's been around for a lot of years, and you can't help but sing along with that one, or at least I can't. So I'm going to go with Black Velvet today. You got to have a vote today, Commissioner. It, it doesn't happen every day that you do an interview. So we appreciate you spending some time with us, Paul, and Hopefully you won't be a stranger and we can have you back on the show another time. Anytime. Gentlemen, thank you for doing what you do. Your support of education-based athletics and kids. There's no, we're here. We have, we enjoy, enjoy what we do in Indiana because of guys like you also. And thank you very much for your support. That's the commissioner of the Indiana High School Athletic Association, Paul Nidig, joining us on Sports Yak. Also, high school news from Michigan over the weekend, where two football coaches have tendered their resignations. Randy Brooks, who spent a couple of years at Dewajak as a head coach, has decided to step down. And the the bigger surprise is Cody French, who went from defensive coordinator at Elkhart to take the Niles head coaching job. And I don't know what Cody saw or didn't see at Niles, but he is now in the running for a job, and it's pending school board approval at another place just outside of our viewing area. Um, and that decision should come today. So there must have been a reason, or he must have seen something in Niles that he didn't like that caused him to go apply for another job. Hmm. So we'll see how those two slots get filled. Also in football news, boy, this is a big boon for the Indiana Hoosiers. They get five-star running back Stephen Carr to transfer from USC to Indiana. And if you look at what the Hoosiers have done here in the offseason, they have five players from Power 5 schools transferring in to Indiana. Now, first of all, Anybody who's followed Hoosier football for any stretch of time knows this does not happen for IU football. IU basketball, maybe. IU football, who wants to go there? Well, under Tom Allen, apparently some of the good players do want to go there. Hmm. 
and he's having a good recruiting year as well. It'll be interesting to see the product the Hoosiers put on the field this fall. You ready to get into our one-hit wonder championship? Love it. Well, it uh, fired up this morning on the Sports Yak Twitter, Sports Yak with two Ks. Chuck, thank you for retweeting on 46 Sports. I can give you a, as we record this, 80% of the votes leaning towards Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. Not surprised. 20% Black Velvet Alana Miles. This feels good. This feels like a, a high-quality episode. And hopefully the listener will feel the same. Hey, you're on Twitter, right? I am at 46 Sports. Sports Yak with two Ks on Twitter as well. Thanks for listening, Yak fans. Oogaluga Vinny Castilla. We've had some fun. Yeah, the show is done. Now we gotta run. It's Sports Yak. Sports Yak. Sports Yak is not filmed in front of a live studio audience. We done. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.